I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John, hello. Hello. I have a question for you. What good are you to anybody? It's a good question. It's you know, one that I've often asked myself. Well, yeah. I haven't. Usually it's my wife that asks me about that way. She would never say that. <laughs> and now, listen, I'm asking you because I was speaking to an academic and author the other night who specializes in writing about, um, and we'll talk about this more another time, fantastic book I'm reading about the history of wealth management and financial advice, which I mean, it's so good. We'll come to that another time. But she was asked, I was at an event where she was speaking, and she was asked um, what use financial journalists are and what financial journalists bring to the party. And she kind of said, well, nothing really. She said, you know, everything, any stock they might write about or any sector they might write about, by the time they get to it, you know, the story's in the market, it's in the price, there's nothing to be gained. Um, So, you know, they're reduced to kind of, and as she said, I'm afraid, she said, hocus pocus. (laughs) So. That's an interesting answer. Yeah, but, you know, she has a, a point about some things. And then I was thinking, well, hang on a tick. What use are me and John? What do we bring? What are we for? You know, full existential crisis yeah. after, after you know, 10 minutes of, of watching this event. But, you know, I don't know what your answer is, but actually I think the financial journalist writing for the retail investor brings a huge amount to the party. I mean, I was thinking about um, the podcast that, that we're going to listen to after this. We talk a lot about how suddenly the UK is investable again. This is great. Everyone wants to invest in the UK now. People are pouring in, pouring in, yeah. um, and it's no longer as cheap as it was. Now, who was buying the UK last year and the and the year before? Your readers and my readers. Because for them, the UK was not uninvestable. For them, they don't have all the sort of international political blah, fussing about Brexit, whatever. They just saw cheap because we told them stuff was cheap. So they were out there buying. Yeah. Now I mean, that's, that's delivering value, right? I, I would agree entirely. Um, and I think I get, I do get the point. I agree about the, if it's in the press, it's in the price. That That's generally true. That's one reason why you and I tend to take the contrarian view of things. Um, it's true. Somebody did interrupt during this conversation and say, Mary normally writes about stuff that's going down, don't you, Mary? I said, well, <laughs> yes, but, you know, in a good way. That's a double-edged compliment, <laughs> yeah. if ever there was one. Um, no, but also, to, to be fair, I think the other point um, that I'd make, um, and I mean, in a way, this is almost more the personal finance than the investment he said, is it was partly years of campaigning by you, actually very specifically and a few select others that got the financial conduct authority so financial services authority it was then 
do the retail distribution review and basically put an end to the fact that financial advisors in this country were a freelance sales force for like the fund management groups. I mean, when you look back on that, it's utterly insane that that was ever deemed acceptable. A fund manager was getting kickbacks from the people whose funds they sold in order to put you in them. I mean, yeah. why was that ever was your mind deemed okay? Well, we went on about it for yeah. years. But so. I remember finding out about that for the first time. And, uh, you know, when I was you know, a very, very young journalist and someone explained to me this, and I was like, that can't be true. That can't yeah. possibly be true. But it was. And also years of campaigning from the likes of us have bought down fees on funds and all that kind of thing. We've had yep. significant interest, influence on the way that the fund management industry charges. But the the main thing I was thinking about is that, uh, you know, when you write specifically for the retail investor, the retail investor, the ordinary person, invests differently to the institutional investor. And if they don't, it's because they don't understand that they can. You know, have a much longer time frame. They don't have to worry about liquidity in the same way. So I mean, take another one, another example, energy stock. Yep. So for the last couple of years, we've been saying, look, you know, if they won't buy them, if the institutional sector won't buy energy stocks because ESG or because whatever, um, or because not forward thinking, whatever, depends how you look at it, um, you can. <laughs> you can buy this cheap stuff that powers the world. Uh, and you know, I do think that's the kind of thing that, that adds value. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, I think I, I take this person's point from the point of view that the kind of commodity news element of it and the kind of groupthink element is, uh, you know, not especially valuable, but I think that if you've got people who are trying to, if you like, uh, for want of a better word, champion the retail investor against the massive kind of set of institutions that largely want to funnel them into things that will make money for the institutions rather than for the individuals, then no, we, you know, we do add value. We add value as much as anyone else does. I mean, what value does your average fund manager add? I mean, seriously, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, if you look at, I mean, you might as well ask what what value does any individual component of the uh, financial industry add? And I, th I think most people would be plunged into an existential crisis if you asked them. I say, what is the point of your job? Okay, I feel better now. I knew that if I asked you about this, you would validate me completely. <laughs> <laughs> Cognitive biases is great. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Tell me what I want to hear. Um, now, tell everyone else what they want to hear briefly before we go. You're writing about house prices again. Falling oh, faster. Yeah. Falling faster yes. than anyone imagined, but as fast as you thought they would. <laughs> he adds value, everyone. See, there you go. If you've been listening to me, you'd have had the pants scared off you and other than that, you probably Quite wouldn't rightly. have done anything. Quite right. So we had the brick survey out, right? <laughs> Yeah. Which, which you and I both think is the most valid of all the uh, house press surveys. Yeah, actually, it's, it's surprisingly good given that it's just the opinion of estate agents and surveyors. Um, but it, but it, it does, you know, it's timely. Um, and they're certainly, yeah, they're not they're not feeling very happy about things. And actually, the, the reading uh, was worse than, you know, the usual economists had expected. I mean, I, I think the thing that I just want to emphasize about house prices this time around is I don't think... Like house prices can come down without causing a massive problem for the wider economy. And I also don't think the wider economy has to be in a massive state for house prices to come down. It really is just partly, a, or sorry, it's mostly a function of interest rates not being at 1.5% anymore, going up to somewhere closer to 4.5%. That happens, house prices just have to come down. It's it's well, it's just hard. it's just part of the great normalisation. Yes, right? exactly. Part of the great normalisation. I was looking at a wonderful chart today. Um 
of um, the volume of negative yielding bonds around the world. And I don't think you've seen this chart. It's absolutely oh, yeah. wonderful. It's basically zero, 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 zero forever. And then suddenly it goes absolutely berserk, soars yeah. to the sky, the line, and then suddenly, boof, straight back down to earth. We're basically at, at zero again. It's one of the yeah. most wonderful reversion to the mean graphs you've ever seen. Well, it's the Bank of Japan was the last was the last holdout, wasn't it? So the JGBs now are all are largely kind of like positive yielding again. Um, and that was that was the uh, that was the thing that brought it back down to zero. But it is it's it's, it's one of the weirdest financial phenomenon that we've seen in the last ten years of a lot of weird financial phenomenon. And hopefully, we won't see it again. I mean, ideally in our lifetimes, um, and I certainly think that's possible. Mm, although a friend in Japan did point out to me uh, a couple of days ago that he's still paying to have this deposit account. Still paying their dividends on deposit accounts. So, you know, it's not over yet, but it's very nearly over. They still use faxes and wax seals in Japan as well. We're doing this. There's, there's a lot of strange Yeah, just like things. the NHS, right? Yeah, yeah. We better leave Maybe, it there. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, our guest is Luca Paolini, who's the chief strategist at Pictet Asset Management. He's got a long history of being a strategist at various places. So we can simply accept before we start that Luca knows pretty much everything about everything. We started our conversation discussing the World Economic Forum taking place this week in Davos. And I was telling Luca about everything I'd been reading about last year's summit, the comments made by attendees on what they were expecting in the year to come, and how most turned out to be worried about all the wrong things. Very few of them, for example, were worried about the collapse of a great financial bubble. They just didn't see it coming. So given that it wasn't actually that hard to see coming, I started by asking Luca how that could be. You know, to be honest, uh, Marin, last year was uh, was abnormal uh, in a number of uh, respects, right? Because we had obviously a massive geopolitical shocks. We we had what I uh, would I like to say, and a very unwelcome guess, it was inflation. You can also blame central banks that uh, you know they didn't see it coming. So I, I think it was abnormal. But I think you know when you look at this year, it seems like there is a consensus in, in Davos that it would be a recession, and maybe they will be wrong again. So, but I agree with you that looking back to um, you know a year ago, where the expectation was, you know, market would be fine, uh, central bank would be very very slow in hiking rates, inflation will rise, but you know, it's a one-off. Well, a lot of things have changed, but you know, let's project ourselves in at the end by uh, the end of this year, the situation may actually look much much better than than everybody seems to expect now. So we will see. But yes, I think. Look, last year was really abnormal, and we and I think we a lot of people uh, got wrong uh, quite a few things. So I think it's we have to accept that. We just have to let that go. I'm not sure I'm prepared to do that that easily. And that uh, you know, these are the people who run our world, right? Now you and I know, or we 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 used to think we knew that uh, uh, you know if you print a lot of money, you get inflation, and that inflation pretty much always comes from money printing, from loose fiscal policy, uh, add in an oil price spike, etc. Last year and a bit of war. It amazes me that we can look back and people would have thought that we would not have an inflation problem. In the same way, it amazes me that we can we can look back and think that people really believed at the beginning of last year that central banks had the ability to control inflation uh, in individual countries when the inflation was coming from a more sort of global orientation. And it also amazes me that we can look at where valuations were at the peak of this bubble and say, well, we don't really have to worry about a collapsing bubble. 
But, but I think, you know, the, the real issue that we have here is that, uh, you know, on our own models, we saw inflation going up a lot. But, you know, the last 30 years, we have seen only very low inflation. And it's difficult to go against your, the history of the last three decades. Obviously, looking back, it was obvious, right? As you said, too much money, uh, supply constraints, uh, people at home with a lot of money to spend uh, during during COVID. There was kind of an, an almost a, a perfect mix of things that would push inflation higher. But when you have three decades or four decades where the main worry was low inflation, it's difficult to change that. This is one of the lessons, I think, of, of last year, that um, you know things may change. Um, there are some historical patterns, but they may change. But at the end of the day, basic, basic economics hasn't changed. As you said, if you print money, uh, and, you, and for a long time, at the end, you're going to get inflation. This is actually the, what, really the big lessons that we that we got from from 2022. It's amazing, isn't it? That lesson needs to be learned over and over again. Every generation, we have to relearn that this is how money works. Yes, and, and look, the only good thing about this rise in inflation is that everybody now understands that inflation is never a solution; is always a problem. You remember when a few years ago the debate was we need more inflation because you know if you have more inflation it will reduce the debt to GDP ratio. It doesn't work like this. Inflation is a tax. It's a very by the way is not it's not progressive and it's a tax on the consumer, but it's also a tax on, on investors. And I think we, we finally realized that uh, inflation is is really never a solution. And, and and last year, if you look at the, you know, if you look at bonds, equities, almost all asset classes went down. Why? Because inflation went up. It's, it's as simple as that. I think the last few decades, we got into this kind of mindset that we need more inflation, we need more inflation. Actually, inflation at 1% or 2% is fine. Inflation at 10 is not fine. But in a dream world, look at what people really want, or what I'm assuming that central bankers and politicians want is inflation at 4 or 5%. Well, I did, look, at the end of the day, I'm not that excited about this debate about it should the inflation target be uh, 4% instead of 2 What really matters is the volatility of inflation. So if you know, Mary, that inflation is going to be 4% for the next 10 years, and you are 100% sure the central bank can deliver on that, it doesn't matter if it's 4 2 or 1%. It doesn't matter because everybody will adjust their expectations. The problem is when you go in, you have a target of 2, inflation goes to 10 or the other way around. So I, I think that, by the way, changing or, or moving the goalposts now, given that central banks have done a huge mistake, would be an horrendous mistake. Honestly, I think this debate on, on inflation target, I think, is, is not particularly helpful. Let's try to, uh, to get inflation down to 2%. And then if it's 3%, in a way, it doesn't matter. But really, moving the goalposts when we just or central bank this horrendous call on inflation, I think will be really, really unhelpful. Yeah, I suspect that it's volatility that we're going to get. And maybe the, the big mistake that we've made for the last couple of decades and are still making now is to think that it is actually possible for central banks to control inflation. I think that's a mistake that we, as in a way, as an industry are making is that we give too much, I think, importance to what central banks are doing. Do you remember, Mary, in the time where they were really boring and very few paid attention to them. Now they're basically like uh, the biggest players. So everybody's obsessed with what the central banks are doing. You have to read every single statement, the commas. What the, and I, I think they're also not helpful. At the end of the day, the, the economy obviously needs central banks, but central banks shouldn't be the one 
basically playing the music all the time. I think it's not, it's, again, it's not healthy, it's not helpful, but that's actually has been the story of the last, basically the last decade or the last two decades. Mm, it's important to remember, someone was pointing out the other day, important to remember that uh, central banks weren't actually originally set up to control inflation, but to borrow money for governments. That's true. <laughs> and somehow they've morphed into this completely different That's role, true. which they're ab- absolutely useless at, whereas, you know, they're quite good at raising money for governments and really, really useless at controlling inflation. So we've got it slightly the wrong way around. Yeah. Right. So let's talk a little bit about what you might have been expecting coming into this year. I mean, as we came into this year, there was something of a, a consensus building, right, that, uh, you know, you shouldn't touch China with a barge pole entirely uninvestable, that, um, uh, you know, Europe is moving into recession, the UK is moving into recession, everywhere is moving into recession. Uh, then inflation is going to slow very quickly as a result, et cetera, et cetera. That's a general consensus coming in. But already that consensus seems to be slightly breaking up in that there's a very dramatic and sudden reopening of China clearly must produce a a big bump of of global demand that perhaps will will totally sort of derail the recession story. Um, And of course, markets that most people at the end of 2022, when I looked at expectations for the year ahead, almost everyone was going, well, well, you know, now the bubble has started bursting, it's kind of going to keep going, there's some way to go here. And of course, we've had a rather good start to the year. So already, all the expectations for this year are beginning to turn out to be not quite right. Brackets again. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that when you look at the, um, at the performance of portfolio, 50% equities, 50% bonds in US dollars, last year has been the worst basically in, in, in a century. You know, we're talking about minus 17%. Again, we're talking about a 50% equities, 50% uh, government bonds portfolio. Horrendous year. This year is one of the best. Uh, okay, we just had two weeks and a half, but the start of the year has been incredibly good, positive. You see actually what brokers are doing there. Everybody is revising up their kind of GDP forecast for this year. Everybody seems to be getting much more positive about Europe. Europe has outperformed massively U.S. stocks in the last three months in in dollar terms. But, you know, to be honest, what has really changed, and I think that's, that's important, is the inflation outlook. You know, just a few months ago, the idea was inflation will fall, but fall very, very slowly. What we see is a significant decline in inflation across across the globe, uh, even in Europe. Uh, and this has changed really everything, right? Because now there is an expectation of rate cuts. The expectation is that consumer across the globe will feel better, and so they will spend more. But I think it's amazing, especially um, what, uh, the, the, what has changed in terms of uh, the expectations around Europe. As, as you mentioned, everybody was expecting a deep recession in Europe. Then we say, well, it's going to be mild now. Most actually economies expect no recession in Europe, even in the UK, where, you know, Aaron, the situation is not great, but the number seems to suggest that the economy is, is uh, more resilient than we thought. And this is, if, if it happens, the most widely anticipated recession in uh, living memory. Everybody was expecting a recession, me too. But the number seems to suggest that there is some underlying kind of resilience that I think is surprising. So what is that resilience? What, what has gone right? I think the conventional kind of wisdom is that there is so much money that uh, in bank accounts, so much money that's been saved during the pandemic that is there to be spent. I'm not buying that argument because if you're really worried about everything, it, you just save more. You don't de-save. I think what has changed really, I think, is that the outlook for inflation uh, has significantly improved. You see that actually in consumer service as well. And there is also another element that has changed is obviously China. You mentioned that before. 
China, as, I mean, in the last three months has, has done in, incredibly well. It's up almost 50%, right? Obviously, that comes from a long period of underperformance. But the fact that the Chinese economy, which let's not forget is the second biggest in the world, is basically reopening. Well, that, that's a massive boost to, to everything, right? To the global economy, to commodities as well. So I, I think there is, an again, China reopening, boost to growth, and commodity prices falling, uh, you know, inflation down, so boost to um, to consumption uh, in developed world. There are a lot of things that are going right, but I would say if I have to mention one, is the declining commodity price, especially in Europe. It's amazing how, for example, natural grass prices are below the level of February of last year, so when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And that's maybe one lesson that, that for all of us is that the economies, economies, consumer can ad- uh, adjust pretty well. You know, Germany is a fantastic example. You know, GDP and industrial production are up year over year, but the imports of gas is down 30%. So I think we have to give also Europe some credit sometimes. And I think uh, this is actually one of the positive surprises uh, of last year, I would say. But we might see commodity prices across the board, not necessarily natural gas, but commodities in general beginning to rise sharply again. Well, in fact, they already are. They already are um, as China uh, reopens properly. I mean, as uh, as is regularly pointed out at the moment, China has been locked down for so long that the uh, in in various different ways that the consumption impulse from the population has got to be absolutely huge. And we all saw in our own economies uh, the massive boost in demand as we were released from all these sort of bonkers lockdowns. Um, and that was only after a few months here and a few months there and a few months here. Uh, China, we're talking close to three years now. People coming out to spend. That's got to be a, a consumption and hence demand impulse greater than anything we've seen elsewhere. Yeah, but, but yeah, the point though is that the consumption boom that we're going to see in China, we're going to see will be basically focused on services. So tourism, for example, is a good example. So the demand for commodity, you, you know that, you know, when you look at copper or iron or China consume roughly 50% of what is produced globally. So it's a massive, obviously. But I have to say that the demand for copper and iron ore normally goes into infrastructure projects, let's say housing, where I think there is not much demand. So I think the when you look at where the consumption will become from Chinese many service is not going to be very commodity intensive. But there is no question on the fact that everybody see the connection between China's growth and commodity price. So there is obviously commodity prices will go higher. But I think, again, the rebound will not be very commodity intensive for China. So I think we may actually not see the usual spike in commodity prices that typically follows uh, a period of um, strong Chinese growth. Okay, interesting. So a lot of the people I'm speaking to at the moment are telling me that when they're looking at the asset classes they're interested in over the next year or so, that commodities is right at the top. Um, but doesn't sound like you're in that gang. Yeah. So what, what what I'm saying is that if we if we look at what asset classes are doing, you know, or what are the best asset classes in this inflation and growth environment, commodities do well when the economy is booming, and inflation is booming too. But the economy is not booming anymore. So I think the best time to buy commodities was probably a year ago. Now we are more into the kind of uh, in an area where gold should do well because inflation is high. And gross is weaker. And then we should go potentially into a bond phase when both inflation and gross are weaker. So I think that, uh, yes, I can see commodity prices stabilizing from here, but I don't see a big rebound because global growth, let's not forget, is still weak. 
China is rebounding, but the rest of the world is effectively stagnating. So I don't see a big rebound in commodity prices, even if I see the secular growth story. Low inventories um, is probably one. There has been supply is very limited. So I I buy the long term story on commodities, but for the next six to twelve months, I think it's much more. I think it's not that obvious to me. Okay, when you say buy the long-term story on commodities, what is it you mean by that, just a sort of general long-term supply-demand story? Yeah, it basically means that what are the two key um, drivers of commodity prices? Uh, Dollar and the supply and demand balance. Now, the demand is dependent, obviously, on on global growth. Supply is very weak because there have been very limited investment in the past 10 years uh, when you look at industrial metals and oil as well. And, and, and the dollar, we expect the dollar to be much weaker. So this is normally a good combination for commodity prices, right? Again, if you look at this year, yes, the dollar is down, but the global economy, in, fa- in fact, is stagnating. So I, I, yes, there is more demand from China, but it's not a booming economy that would normally allow commodity prices to, um, to rise. So I think, it's, yes, you're going to see an improvement probably on, 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 on all private I think the upside is on gold. And I know that gold is also something that you like, but I don't see a big, big spike in commodity prices for, the, in the, for this year now. Okay, so explain in a little more detail, if you don't mind, why this is a good environment for gold. I refer to this kind of diagram, right? Inflation and growth. Let's keep it simple. Gold typically does well, um, you know, it's typically seen as inflation hedge. Last year, it didn't work. Why? Because the dollar was exceptionally strong. So what gold needs is a weaker dollar, inflation being high, and actually a decline of real interest rates, because this is actually the opportunity cost of holding gold. So when you own gold, you don't basically you don't get any interest, you don't get any coupon, nothing. So the opportunity cost of holding gold, or investing in gold, is the real interest rate. They're still low. We tend to forget that interest rates have gone up quite a lot. But if you look at interest rates related to inflation, they still get it. So I think this combination of, you know, still low real interest rates and the weaker dollar and inflation risk, to me, makes gold very attractive. The only issue that we have with gold is that on our valuation metric, the gold price is, as in, let's say, still relatively high. So the valuation case for gold is not that strong. But all the drivers that historically has pushed the gold higher, they're all present now. So I think gold, and funnily enough, I was actually looking yesterday, if you look at the performance of gold year to date, it's actually the best among the major asset classes, but also in the last five years. If you look at the last five years, gold is the best asset class. So I think it's it's not just tactical. You know, we are very bullish on gold, let's say from a secular point of view, but tactically, given the weakness in the dollar and a still relatively high inflation risk, I think gold should do well this year. And it is doing well so far. Yeah. Okay, last question on gold, because you know, I like to hang around on gold for a bit. When you say that in valuation terms, it doesn't look that attractive, how do you value gold? Are you doing that relative to silver, relative to oil, relative to inflation? How is that working? Well, we have a very simple model based on uh, the dollar and the uh, real interest rates. And obviously, the, the model is, is uh, clearly, but otherwise it wouldn't be a good model, very correlated with actual prices. But now, uh, the gold price is higher than it should be, given the, uh, the strength of the dollar basically last year. So in, in a sense, you know, uh, the valuation, the gold price is not cheap, but valuation is not everything. 
Valuation is one of the elements that you have to look at when you make an investment decision. So that's why we expect gold to go high this year, but not to, to go up by 20%. I think probably if you go to 10, 15% is what we expect. But you know, that, that's, that's what, we, what we expect for this year. And we expect pretty much the same growth over the next five to 10 years. So gold for us continues to be a great investment in the medium to the long term. Let me just pick you up on something you said there. Valuation isn't everything. Now, that's what they used to say in the equity market, didn't they? That's, <laughs> yeah, how, that's how we justify big tech going berserk. That's how we justify the, the price of the U.S. equity market in general. In fact, that's how we justify the bubble. Valuation isn't everything. It's all about growth. It's all about this. It's all about that. We were practically back to eyeballs by the end of the bubble, weren't we? So looking ahead then and remembering that valuation, while it might not be everything, certainly in the equity market, it's... It's almost everything. Which part of the global equity market looks attractive to you for, for this year? Valuation, by the way, matters, we know, when it's extreme. And that's one of the lessons also of last year, right? We all knew that uh, bonds were expensive, government bonds. So let's say bond yields were too low. But because we have seen them for so long, low that they say, well, they're not really. That, that's, that's the new normal, but it was not the new normal. It was just wrong. And obviously, you can apply the same logic in some area of tech and, and, and other as well. I think when you look at just a valuation, first of all, let me say that these massive valuation gaps that were present two years ago, let's say emerging markets incredibly cheap, U.S. equities incredibly expensive, government bond very expensive, they have basically corrected. So now, or value versus growth is the same logic. You remember, Marin, we, we discussed that many times the value stocks were incredibly cheap relative to growth. So now the valuation kind of anomalies or the extremes are much less extreme than, than, than before. There are still some pockets of good value, right? So obviously you may say, I think, Chinese equities, for example, are, are, are attractive from a valuation point of view. Then we can debate, again, if that's enough, but I think valuation is attractive. Uh, even small caps in some countries, especially in the U.S., they look actually relatively relatively cheap. But again, after the rally that we have seen, it's difficult to say that there are some very, very cheap equity markets across the globe. It's very difficult to find them. In relative terms, yes, but in absolute terms, um, it's very difficult. And to be honest with you, is if I tell if I tell you, look, inflation is much higher than than normal. Growth is zero. You would expect valuation to be actually very cheap, but it isn't, uh, which makes me think that also the upside for equities overall is quite limited for this year. And we believe that the real upside is is on emerging markets. To be and this is this is kind of I know it's a difficult call, <laughs> uh, given what we have seen in the past ten years. It has been horrendous for emerging markets. But the real value now is in emerging market, and especially if you take into consideration that emerging market currencies are cheap. So you get the upside from China, you get the upside probably from earnings, you get the upside from the currency, and 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 I think investors are not positioned for that. Everybody's telling me, oh, we like emerging market. But when you look at the actual positioning, uh, the positioning seems to be not in line uh, with what uh, investors are telling me. So I think there is more upside uh, on emerging market for this year. Okay, that's interesting. Everyone is telling me that emerging markets are the right call for this year. And yeah. uh, when I get told that by so many people, I kind of assume that uh, <laughs> there's a little action to follow the words, but perhaps there is not. Yeah, I, I think it's something also that I uh, that scares me a little bit is that I've been seeing clients a lot in the past uh, few weeks. There is a lot of consensus around uh, 
too many calls. So let's say emerging market will do well, bond yields will fall, inflation will fall, interest rates will probably be cut at the end of this year. There is a lot of, of consensus. And that actually scares me because I know Oh, that's my experience. When there is too much consensus, typically you have a big surprise. I don't know where the surprise is coming from, but there is a very high level of consensus on almost everything. And it's the first time in many years that I experienced that uh, at the start of the year. So I think that's something that, um, again, scares me a little bit. Okay. If you had to pluck what that surprise might be out of the air, what do you think it would be? Well, uh, let's look at the positive, right? We always tend to look at the uh, surprise in negative terms. No, let's let's be positive. I think some kind of, uh, I wouldn't say peace, but ceasefire in Ukraine uh, would be a massive boost. It would be a massive boost because it would allow commodity prices to fall more. Central bank may cut rates. There would be obviously a strong rebound in Europe. I don't know. I hope this will happen sooner, uh, as soon as possible. But this could be something that can change things. The negative one, I think, is 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 that inflation. At some point, we, we reach four to five percent. Stop falling. Maybe because, as you mentioned, China is recovering. In, in commodity prices will go higher, and that actually can be very damaging for markets, right? Because if inflation stops falling, central banks are forced to basically. Maybe they were forced to to hike even more, and this would be really damaging because you know the decline in inflation is the theme that everybody is playing currently. And if you question that, if this is challenged, well, then valuation is too high. Central banks will have to hike even more, and that's actually would be basically going back <laughs> to the same environment of a year ago. And hopefully, it's not going to happen. Okay, what about the UK? Everyone is so down on the UK um, and has been for some time now, but it is still one of the cheaper markets. Uh, the FTSE 100 has actually been a massive outperformer, I mean, relatively speaking, right, over the last year. And when you look at the news, the, the actual numbers, as opposed to the, the misery poured out in the papers and the press, things don't look so bad. No, because I think we all tend to make the same mistake that UK markets are really is not really correlated with UK economy. We're talking about a few big stocks, but not about a few big stocks that are basically multinationals, right? Where the exposure to the UK economy is, is very minimal. I think, you know, the when you look at also the composition of the UK of the UK market is for us is almost the ideal stagflation play, right? Because you have a lot of defensive names, very solid very cash generative, and you also have the commodity exposure via basically energy and mining. So um, I think that, and you know that we have been very uh, bullish on UK stocks, mainly on the, on the assumption that the composition of the, of the of UK index basically is very stagflation uh, friendly in a way. Now, what is the problem uh, that, that, that UK stocks face now? When we upgraded the UK market, this was really when nobody wants to actually even they were not even thinking about investing in the UK. Now the UK market is, is continues to be cheap, but it is investable. <laughs> Let's put it this way. So I think it's in a phase where global growth may potentially reaccelerate. And I don't know. I don't think the UK market will do as well in relative terms as last year. But I can see the dividend yield, the defensive names, I think would obviously help the performance. But the best probably of the UK uh, market our performance is behind us and there is I have to say 
I don't want to be political, but it's nothing to do with politics. There is still a Brexit, I think, premium in the market. And you see that in the relative kind of valuation of the UK versus the rest of Europe. And this won't go away. But I, I, I do believe, though, that for long-term investors, when you look at long-term investors, I think the UK market is still a good place to be. As you said, it's not, it's not expensive. You have very good companies, well-managed. And again, the UK market has really nothing to do or not so much with the UK economy that is still struggling. Again, we are not in a recession, but it's, uh, I think the UK economy will clearly struggle this year. And so if you are or thinking about investing in the UK stocks, don't do it because you think the, uh, the UK economy will boom just because uh, of the multinationals and that are that, there that will generate still uh, decent profits. I love the idea that the UK is the perfect stagflation play. I'm given that we're prone to stagflation. That's great, right? Well, hopefully uh, the stagflation story is behind us, right? Because we are saying that growth will improve and inflation will fall. So actually, Mary, what is interesting is that uh, in a year's time, we'll be exactly in the opposite scenario, where growth is back to normal and improving, inflation is back to normal and falling, but a lot of things has to go right to, to be at that point. And definitely it's not going to happen in the next three months. It's more like a story for probably the end uh, of, this, uh, of this year. Okay, well, let's talk about something that really, really has gone wrong. Um, and that's that's crypto. Um, and I'm um, I try really hard to be open minded about crypto. I mean, I really do. I know a lot of our listeners and readers will think that I make no effort at all to be open minded, but it's simply not true. I've watched all the videos that the uh, crypto fans try and make me watch. I've read the books. I've done all of it, and I still cannot see a viable future and a viable use case for cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin. By the way, um, and I wonder how you feel about that. Well, you know, when, when uh, cryptos, you know, obviously a few years ago, everybody was, was asking us, what is our view? My, my view back then was that cryptocurrencies are like a lottery ticket, right? You buy a lottery ticket, why? Because, you know, there is a very, very, should we say, small, marginal, insignificant probability that you're going to win. But if you win, you win big. And, and I think if you think in that way, uh, you know, okay, then you can say, I can buy a few and then let's hope. Uh, the point, though, here, especially for what I'm doing, my job is to advise uh, people how to invest wisely for the long term. And to me, a lottery ticket is not an asset class. It's something different. You can still have, a, you know, you can make money out of it, but it's not something that would suggest uh, my clients to own. Then, obviously, I'm also not a, a crypto uh, kind of uh, specialist. I can see the logic behind you know, in a period where central banks were printing money like crazy, having some kind of a currency where the supply was fixed has obviously appeal. I understand that. So this combination with, you know, easy money or let's say money printed by central banks, obviously the tech angle because the blockchain uh, story is very significant. So I, I, can, I can see why there was this bubble. But then here we go. The easy money is over, monetary tightening, and the monetary tightening exposes exactly the weak of some of the assumptions we're making about cryptos, right? But again, I don't think that cryptocurrencies will or should be a building block of an investment portfolios. It's like it's really like continue for me to be a lottery ticket and look at what happened in the last few months. It's still very, by the way, very also dependent on regulation. It's something that's difficult to value. Uh, so I, I still believe that is not, from my point of view, an asset class that should be in portfolios uh, for long-term 
and let's say relatively cautious investors. No, I don't, I don't think so. And my view hasn't changed uh, in the last few in the last few weeks or, or months. Sounds to me like you've got your own Coinbase account with a you know a couple of thousand pounds worth of Bitcoin in it, just in case. <laughs> no, I have, I have nothing. But to be honest, I can't blame if someone did it and you know they made good money out of it. So, uh, but but again, you won the lottery. It doesn't mean that you are. Uh, an investment guru. I think you won the lottery and that's it. And then we have to move on. <laughs> mm, well, I'd like to win the lottery. Um, okay, Me so <laughs> here we are. Um, it's, <laughs> it's a confusing year. It's a difficult year. We're worried about consensus. But if I could sum up where you might recommend or suggest a retail investor, an ordinary investor to go from here, you'd say to them, you know what, you should have gold. You should have emerging markets. You should know that commodities are a good long-term play. Uh, you should have learned from the last couple of years to keep a close eye on valuation. Is there anything else that you might say to an ordinary investor looking at their portfolio and going, oh, God, I don't know what to do? Is there anything else that you would say to them today? Yeah, I think, look, uh, we don't expect this year to be great, right, for, for equity uh, for equity investors, but it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Something that I think has changed significantly is the outlook for government bonds and fixed income products. You know, uh, when I when I joined Big Tape 10 years ago, uh, bond yields were much, much higher. They were obviously in this kind of uh, downtrend. But I remember, I don't remember one year where we told investors, look, this is time to increase your allocation to fixed income. And I think this is actually the right time to do it. You start to see some real good uh, valuation on government bonds in the sense that the, your coupon is decent. In the U.S., you know, it's 3.5, could be 4%. So the point is that there is, this is something that, you know, we haven't had in a very long time. Considering that equities are not particularly cheap, I think it's not a bad idea to reallocate some of your money into government bonds with the assumption from our point of view that we may not see a recession but we're not going to see a significant pickup in growth. So nominal growth will actually be quite weak because inflation is falling and real growth is very low. So I think what we are actually advising and suggesting our clients is to put some money back into fixed income products, right? Or could be government bonds in the US. We like emerging market debt because I think this is the time after a long period of uh, financial repression that basically kept uh, real bond yields and real interest rates much below where uh, they should be. So I think that would be my, let's say, something new, maybe different <laughs> from the past, is to reallocate uh, money from maybe from cash or from equities into government bonds. But obviously, uh, you need to be selective. We see more value, for example, in U.S. treasuries, in, in government bonds, especially in Latin America, much less in Europe, where I think the, uh, there is uh, the risk of central banks to be even tighter and so for bond yields to, uh, to rise and so for bond returns to remain quite low in the short term. So that would be, this is probably the biggest change in terms of uh, our long-term view for, uh, for this year. Thank you, Luca. That's almost exciting. I can't remember the last time I spoke to anybody on a podcast or an interview of any kind where they actually recommended increasing exposure to, to the bond market. So thank you for that. But government bonds <laughs> exciting, though, seems to be a little bit extreme. But uh... <laughs> I'm doing my best, Luca. I'm doing yeah, my best. Okay, I like we'll go, that. We have to pull some excitement from the whole I thing. I like that. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us today. I hugely appreciate it. Thank you, Mary. 
Thanks for listening to this week's Marion Talks Money. We will be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, and I really hope you do, review it and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Marion Somerset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi, additional editing by Blake Maples, and special thanks, of course, to Luca Paolini and to John Stepek. Finally, of course, this is your weekly reminder to sign up immediately to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link is in the show notes and you won't regret it. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.